am going to embarrass Matthew. Um, <laughs> Matthew, before the service today, um, went and did an interview on uh, the BBC. And uh, he came into church and said, oh, it was hilarious. This morning I was on the BBC and uh, the interviewer said to me, um, apart from the triumphal entry, what's Palm Sunday all about? And Matthew thought, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's not about anything other than the triumphal entry, is it? It's, you know, it, that's all it is. Um, I didn't tell him I was going to say that, so, you know, I might be in trouble now. <laughs> but I think that is our response often, isn't it, to this passage. If the question had been, apart from the death of Jesus, what is Good Friday all about? That is an easy question to answer. Apart from an empty tomb, what is Easter Sunday about? That is an easy question to answer. But apart from the triumphal entry, what is Palm Sunday about? That's maybe a little bit more difficult. And I think when we think about Holy Week, which we are now in, starting today, we sometimes forget about Palm Sunday, don't we? And it's been really interesting um, realising, as I've been doing my reflections on this story, the extent to which I've never really thought about it before. So these are the thoughts which I've had as I have been thinking about it. It is a story told in seven acts. You can see what they are there. You can check in the Bible um, if you think you don't agree with me. Um, Let's just get started. Act one, journeying with the king. After Jesus had said this, he's been telling a parable. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is travelling to Jerusalem. You probably noticed as we came in this morning, big long rolled paper down the middle of the room with arrows on it, pointing from the western entrance to the eastern exit towards Jerusalem. We are journeying with Jesus towards Jerusalem, and throughout this week, we go on a journey through the Easter story. It's a, it's a journey which we make every year. And this is the beginning of the story. There you are. This is the beginning of our journey. That is Google Maps walking itinerary from this building to Jerusalem. It's a tidy, uh, it's 998 hours. Let's call it 1,000 because you're going to want to take toilet breaks. Um, through all of, down through France, North Africa. It's about three and a half thousand miles to walk from here to there. But this is, symbolically, this is the journey we take towards Jerusalem. And it is a journey, one of the things that struck me is it is a journey which we think of as a sad journey often. Because we focus on Good Friday, on the betrayal on Thursday evening, you know, we know that it ends with a happy place. But we often think of it as a sad part of our story. It's, it's, it's mournful in a way which, say, Christmas isn't. But actually, it begins here and it ends next Sunday with triumph. And it begins with 
a recognition of Jesus as the king, and it ends with a revelation of Jesus as God. This is not a sad journey. It is a journey with sad bits in it, but it is ultimately, it is a triumphant journey. This is Jesus' royal procession, this journey. So, if we acknowledge Jesus as the king, which I hope we do, what kind of king is he? As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, very important place in the Bible, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, which we'll come back to later, not today, but later in the week, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say, the Lord needs it. And indeed, that's what happened. And they replied, the Lord needs it. Why did Jesus need the cult? The opening words that we said this morning, that we had such trouble getting on the screen, were from Zechariah, or adapted from Zechariah, where it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners. That's Zechariah 9, 9 to 11, if you want to look it up yourself. Jesus sent his disciples to find the cult because it spoke to the kind of king he wanted to be. It oriented him within that Old Testament prophecy. It revealed him as someone who was righteous, someone who brought peace, someone who was humble, and someone who is connected with the blood of the covenant. This is how Jesus wanted to begin this journey into Jerusalem. And he could have done it differently, couldn't he? Matthew began the service by talking about do we expect a conqueror? Do we expect a rabble-rouser? And Jesus didn't come as that. He came bringing peace, and he came bringing freedom and righteousness in humility. So that's the kind of king Jesus is. So what is our response to that? You should hopefully have been given a bit of paper, which looks more or less like that. If you don't have one, we have more. We can get some out to you. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. This was their response to seeing Jesus the king. Their response was to lay their garment down. So, question. What is Jesus asking you to lay down this morning? 
as a response to his kingship. I don't know if that's a very easy question to answer. But as I go on speaking, and we'll come back to it a few times, think, what is Jesus asking you to lay down as a response to his kingship? We have some pens in the song after this, um, after, after the reflections. It'd be really good if you could get a pen, write that on the back of the T-shirt, and then put it on our road towards Jerusalem. We're going to be doing this later in the 11 o'clock all-age service as well. It'd be really great to have your witness as well as to what you'd lay down. And as I was thinking about the passage and breaking it into chunks which made sense, I was interested to see the middle chunk, which often biblical writers structure their stories so that the middle chunk is really ultra-significant. The middle chunk of this story is worship. When he came... Um, when he came near to the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the name of the King. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest. This is the centre of our response to Jesus' kingship. If you make no other response this morning to this story, to Jesus. Make sure you make a worshipful response. Yeah? Yeah? Matthew says yes. (laughs) Because worship is the centre of that response. And then just a couple of verses at the end, we come to, I suppose, the response to our response. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why don't you tell them off for what they're saying? I suppose subtextually, because what they're saying about you isn't true. And this, so this is about opposition, isn't it, to the king and Jesus' kingship. And that can come from outside of ourselves, outside of the church. Although, I don't know, in this country, I think it's hard to talk about persecution in a world where many Christians experience much more profound persecution than we do. You know, any difficulties we have, I think need to be set against, say, the experience of Syrian Christians at the moment. So I'm reluctant to talk about how terrible things are for Christians in the pluralist West. But that's not the only place that opposition comes from. Because I think most often opposition comes from ourselves. If I am honest, if I was asked to write on the back of these, 
what I'm laying down this morning. My response is not to joyfully start coming up with a list of things which I want to do to show Jesus' kingship. My response is to start grudgingly creating a list of things which he may not touch. I wonder if that resonates. If it doesn't resonate with any of you, you are better Christians than I. But I I struggle with these questions. Because it's not easy being asked to risk things that you care about. Because sometimes that's what you're going to be asked to lay down. Other times you're going to be asked to lay down things which maybe you are more keen to get rid of, but which are maybe still difficult. Maybe it's a row you've been having with someone. And God's saying to you this morning, you need to stop having that row. You need to be the bigger person in this situation. Maybe it's a difficulty you're having with something that happens at work, in your social life, at church. And God's saying to you, actually, that is standing in the way of your witness to me as the king. Maybe that's where opposition is coming from, though, because you think, I'm still cross with that person. I don't want to give that up, because if I give it up, it looks like they're winning. Or I don't want to lay that thing down because that thing is too precious to me. I don't know. It's difficult, though. And I think that is where opposition comes from. So if you have those oppositional voices in your head right now, think about what that says about your response to Jesus' kingship. Because Jesus' response to the opposition is this. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Liz thought it was a potato, (laughs) but it's a rock. Um, The, thank you. Jesus' response to the opposition is not to argue his case. It's not to say, oh, well, you say it's not true, but I say it is true. Because he just takes it as read that it's true, I think. What he says is, if my followers do not show my kingship, do not declare my kingship in their worship, in the way they live their lives, in what they lay down, the stones, the inanimate objects, will cry out. The foolishness of God is that he chooses to use us to build his kingdom. The foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. But the whole of the Bible is about that, isn't it? From certainly Noah, probably the Garden of Eden onwards. The whole of the Bible is about God using people to build his kingdom. But God doesn't need us to build his kingdom, does he? God can spontaneously create his rule on earth. Can bring about an example where every knee bows... You've got to imagine that would be pretty easy. 
And yet he chooses us, the church, his disciples, to build that kingdom for him. And if we let those oppositional voices become too loud in us, and we do not show in our actions, in our words, in the way we live our lives, in the things we choose to lay down, if we do not show his kingship, we will have failed. God will still build his kingdom, but we will have failed as a church, as his disciples, as the experiment which Jesus started by giving 12 people the Holy Spirit and saying, off you go then. And I think that would be a tragedy. And then in verse 41, which we didn't read, and indeed right until the end of the Gospels, Luke's Gospel and indeed all the Gospels, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. The journey goes on. The, the road, which began somewhere outside the city of Jerusalem, and went through a mealtime with his followers, through a criminal's death on the cross, to an empty tomb. The road goes on. So I would encourage you to come with us on that journey this week, to remember this story again. But remember, it's a story which begins and ends in triumph. Amen. Oh,